All right, one minute past the hour. Thanks for joining everybody. One announcement before we get into the lesson. I have a wedding to attend in two weeks. That would be January 28th. When I was speaking with Robert before we started the meeting tonight, and Robert has a conference to attend himself. So I had originally planned on having a substitute for me so that we could carry on the lesson plan. And uh, Tim, I think you might be here. So I apologize for springing this news on you in the moment rather than doing that privately. Um, but we have decided to cancel the Bible study in two weeks uh, because Robert has a conflict as well. So January 28th, there will be no Bible study. We will be on as normal next week on the 21st and we'll resume on February 4th. Uh, apology for that inconvenience, but thanks for patience with that. And that is my only announcement. Uh, without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. All right, let's get to the scripture reading. It's going to be in two separate recordings, so be patient with me when I switch from chapter 18 to chapter 19. But here we go. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's residence. Now it was very early morning. They did not go into the governor's residence, so they would not be ceremonially defiled, but could eat the Passover meal. So Pilate came outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They replied, If this man were not a criminal, would we have handed him over to you? Pilate told them, Take him yourselves and pass judgment on him according to your own law. The Jewish leaders replied, We cannot legally put anyone to death. This happened to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken when he indicated what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate went back into the governor's residence, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Then Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus replied, You say that I am a king. For this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked, What is truth? When he had said this, he went back outside to the Jewish leaders and announced, I find no basis for an accusation against him. But it is your custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Then they shouted back, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. The Gospel of John, Chapter 18 Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged severely. The soldiers braided a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe. They came up to him again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him repeatedly in the face. Again, Pilate went out and said to the Jewish leaders, Look, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no reason for an accusation against him. So Jesus came outside wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Look, here is the man! When the chief priests and their officers saw him, they shouted out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, You take him and crucify him. Certainly, I find no reason for an accusation against him. The Jewish leaders replied, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard what they said, he was more afraid than ever, and he went back into the governor's residence and said to Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and to crucify you? Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. From this point on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leader shouted out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, Gabbatha in Aramaic. 
Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, about noon. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, Look, here is your king. Then they shouted out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? The high priests replied, We have no king except Caesar. Then Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, that was the scripture reading for today. Um, we are getting into the really dark stuff. Um, and uh, But today, we are mostly going to focus on the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus. Personally, I find this scene, if we want to describe it as such as a scene, it's just the most incredible one in, in the gospel. It brings all the themes together. I absolutely love this stuff. So if I get slightly overly excited today, it's because I, I just think there's so much wonderful stuff here. Um, and I'm going to start where we left off last time. Really, I'm going to go back just a little bit to set the stage, but then we're going to talk about new stuff. So uh, just bear with me for the first few minutes. Like I had described last time, or I suppose remember last time, essentially we spoke about the Jewish trial of Jesus, and then the Jews hand Jesus over to the Romans. By the way, when I say the Jews, really I mean the Jewish religious elite. I don't mean every Jew or the nation as a whole or or what have you. Uh, it's really the elite that is calling the shots here. Well, Jesus at this point has been deserted by all of his apostles, um, you know, the Jews take him to, to uh, Pilate. Pilate is the governor. Uh, technically, he's a prefect, but the, the word governor is, is, is a more generic term that can refer to different, to really two different types of governor, one of them being a prefect, and that's what uh, Pontius Pilate was. Um, as, we, as, as I have discussed many times before, this was typical for the Roman legal system, for there to be an accuser who brings a prisoner, and then that accuser acts as a sort of prosecutor and a witness uh, all at once. Uh, this would have happened very early in the morning. Again, like I said last time, the Romans, at least during the summertime, the, the Romans considered eight o'clock already to be late morning. So when we read very early in the morning, we're talking probably 6 a.m., you know, around that time. Um, and uh, last, you know, recap from last time is remember when the Jews deliver Jesus, they will not go into their praetorium. That's the word in the Greek. Um, because the house of a Gentile is unclean. And if a Jew goes into the home of a Gentile, then he becomes unclean. And uh, these Jews then would not have been able to partake of the festivities at least not all of them anyways, because they would be unclean. Pilate comes out to meet them. And that, and, and that shows some level of accommodation, right? Pilate is being at least slightly accommodating to the Jews. I think that's pretty much where we left off um, last time. So let's take it from there. Well, first, let, let's talk about Pilate just a little bit. He had a reputation for being quite brutal. Uh, you know, even before the trial of Jesus, he had executed Jews without a trial. Um, he had faced strong Jewish opposition because he had been quite brutal to them. Uh, certainly, Pilate was no friend of the Jews. Uh, many historians, if not most, will describe him as anti-Semitic, and they're probably correct. Um, now, it also seems that by this point, Pilate has gained at least a little bit of political savvy. Um, it shows just in, you know, those slight accommodations that he will make, that he realizes, sure, he can hate these people, but he's got to play nice, at least to avoid, um, you know, some kind of revolution or, or really just conflict in general. Um, Pilate also, the other thing we need to know about him is that he was an equestrian. That was a lower class of citizen than a senator. Okay, So he really is not that important of a guy in that regard, in the, you know, in the sense that he does not come from a really high social class. But he gains his position because of his patron, Sejanus. Um, Sejanus can also be pronounced pronounced Sejanus, but I'm not going to use the latter pronunciation for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> and um, 
Sejanus at this point, well, or let me backtrack just a little bit. The crucifixion of Jesus happened in either the year 33 AD or 30 AD. There is a lot of controversy among scholars. Traditionally, right, we have thought it's 33 AD, uh, but it's, it's one of those two dates, which doesn't really matter to our story. The difference in dating depends really on on how you date prior events. Um, so again, that's, that's a controversy that hardly matters from a theological standpoint. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because uh, Sejanus was executed in the year 31 AD, okay? So if the execution of Jesus is happening in the year 33, then uh, Pontius Pilate has lost already his patron. So he is in a politically weak position. But honestly, even if the crucifixion of Jesus happened in the year 30 AD, then he probably is already feeling the strong opposition against his patron that would end up with his execution just a year later. Either way, the point is that um, Pilate has to be politically careful. He cannot just do whatever he wishes because that could end up costing him his job or his life for that matter. Uh, in fact, at the end of Pilate's career as, as governor, he is in fact opposed uh, for his brutality. Um, so he loses his job. And then what happens after that? Uh, while he's uh, in exile, we don't know. Uh, I will discuss some of the traditions. But, okay. but that is an important point. Picture somebody who is you know, not fond of the people he's dealing with, but has to play nice for political reasons. Well, so the Jews come to him and they say, you know, we're bringing you the, this criminal. Uh, we're bringing you this traitor, essentially. He claims to be king. And um, they have to bring him to the Roman governor because they, the Jews, I mean, the Sanhedrin, they do not have the power to execute someone. And that sets the stage for the conversation that is about to happen. Well, Pilate would have been informed of the charges, so it makes sense that he would begin the conversation already being informed of that, and, and he begins by asking, are you the king of the Jews? Now, there's immediately an irony there, right? Um, like, for us, the readers, I'm not saying that, you know, kind of the characters in the story, so to speak, would have detected that, but as the readers, we realize Pilate is asking the million-dollar the million question. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the high priest? Is he the king? Is he God himself? All these questions are really tied up together, right? Um, so it is, th there's an irony in the story that now here's a Gentile barely familiar with Jesus who is getting to the crux of the matter. Um, when the, the Jews demonstrate again and again that they don't under, they don't really understand uh you know, what is going on. Um, also notice that the question is strange in the sense that it is phrased in an unusual way. Throughout the gospel, um, we don't see that exact phrasing before. And really, that's not even a typical Christian confession. What I mean is, as Christians, normally we might refer to Jesus as Messiah, Christ, Lord, or perhaps King of Israel or king of kings, but generally not king of the Jews. Um, that That's not a particularly important theological point, but it shows that uh, this is a charge. Essentially, these are words that came from the religious elite, and they're trying to phrase it in a political way. You know, he's claiming to be king, which makes him a traitor to the Romans, to Caesar, and that would be deserving of death. Um well, Jesus' reply plays on the irony of Pilate's question. It's really very clever when Jesus responds, are you saying this on your own initiative or have, other, or have others told you about me? I, I think we could fairly rephrase this question by saying, oh, so you can tell, right? When Pilate says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Oh, so you can tell. Did you figure it out on your own or did someone have to tell you? Um. Which is why Pilate's response makes perfect sense, right? He says, I am not a Jew, am I? In other words, he's saying, how would I know? 
I'm not a Jew. I'm, I'm, how would I be able to tell? Right. Um, but the, so the conversation, uh, kind of gets, gets heated or interesting very quickly right off the bat. Um, and then, then Pilate responds, your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done now? If the conversation begins with, you know, some sarcasm or mockery or, or whatever, uh, immediately Pilate goes to a very uh, kind of hefty question. In other words, Pilate is saying, your people wish me to kill you. What have you done? Okay. Getting to the heart of the matter. Now, there may be also some criminal procedure at work here, um, which I'm sure nobody listens to. To this Bible study for criminal procedure, but <laughs> there, in a Roman trial, um, if a defendant would not defend himself, then the charges would be brought up against him three times. And if he did not defend himself three times, then he would be convicted by default. And actually, throughout the conversation, we're going to see that play out where Pilate asks Jesus three times. Now, I also want to concede that perhaps Pilate is not thinking in terms of criminal procedure and the conversation just developed this way. That's entirely possible. But, you know, if, if nothing else, this conversation is in keeping with standard Roman procedure. And I think that's important from a historical reliability standpoint. Um, well, so again, Pilate says, your own people want to kill you. Uh, what have you done? And, Jesus, he makes a very bad legal move. If we want to, now it's very much on purpose. I'm not saying Jesus made a mistake, but essentially, if if you were a prisoner who's trying to, you know, uh, not be convicted, particularly sentenced to crucifixion, you would deny the charge. You would say, "No, I am not king of the Jews. I didn't say that." But Jesus actually does not deny the charge, which is really surprising. And it had to be quite surprising to Pilate himself. Um, he, he says, look, I, or, you know, if I paraphrase, I, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he says. Now notice that he doesn't deny the charge. He doesn't say, I don't have a kingdom or I am not a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, which legally speaking is a sort of concession. Yes, I am a king. And what is the evidence? He provides to say, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, as it is, okay? Um, which in context, he's saying, look around. There's nobody fighting, right? My followers are not trying to break into the palace, uh, or I ought to say the praetorium. Um, you know, they're not trying to fight against the other Jews. They're not trying to fight against the Romans. There is no fighting. So clearly, I'm not leading some political revolution. Um but again, what's really important about this statement is the fact that Jesus does not deny the charge. He actually concedes it, uh, which, legally speaking, bad move, right? Um, and Jesus picks up on that. I mean, not uh, forgive me. Pilate picks up on that, on that confession, and so he exclaims, "So you are a king, right?" Um, and notice this would be the second time that the accusation is brought against the accused, Jesus in this case. Um, and Jesus responds again without denying the charge. He says, so you say that I am a king. Okay. Now, this statement when Jesus responds that, so you say that I am a king, could be taken in a couple of different ways. Particularly if you read older commentaries, um, they rephrase it like, you say I am a king because I am. Or, in older English, thou sayest, for I am a king. But you could also take this part of the conversation a slightly different way, that Jesus is kind of bypassing the title, right? So he's saying, so you say that I am, but let me tell you the substance. Let me you call it whatever you will, but let me tell you the substance. I have come to testify to the truth, and anyone who is of the truth will listen to me. So... Does that make me a king? And of course, that last question is me paraphrasing. That's not in the text, um, right? But but you can see the force of this. It's like, so you say I am a king. Let me tell you what I am. 
I am one who was born to speak the truth and all who know the truth, listen to me. Um, does that make me a king? Um, again, that is not a denial of the charge being brought against him. Um, and then we get to this moment that somebody mentioned last time that I, I think is so impactful. After Jesus says that, right, hey, I am, you know, uh, I was born to bring the truth. Um, Pilate asks, what is truth? And I think there's two ways you can take this, but either way, his question is so poignant. Um, you could look at it like Pilate is mocking Jesus by saying this, what is truth? Because think about it. Pilate lived the life of, our, of Roman politics and military prowess. Um, so, you know, if, if I can phrase this in a very kind of dramatic way, we could imagine making, we could imagine him making the following monologue. Uh, he could say something like, do you think a, a man is convicted because he's guilty? He's convicted because he's weak. Do you think the powerful escape justice because they're righteous? Don't be naive. Do you think only the wicked are conquered and enslaved? We conquer devils and saints alike. Do you think the righteous rule the world? The strong rule over all. Do you think that kings speak only truth? They don't. Yet go ahead and disagree with them and see what happens. Do you think that truth matters at all? Don't be a child, right? From his Roman governor standpoint, he could really be saying truth doesn't matter. It is power that matters, right? Um, and that would very much be in keeping with his position in life and who he was and how brutal he was. Um, so he could have seen truth as a laughable thing. What matters is power. What's true or not is really secondary, if at all relevant. Um, but there is actually another alternative. Maybe he does mean the question earnestly. How come? Well, you, we're going to see throughout this trial that Pilate is really impressed with Jesus. Um, so maybe he really is asking, you, you say you, you're bringing the truth. What is this truth? Um, and perhaps we're seeing a man that has lived this life of, of corruption, of, of power, of, you know, military conquest. And he has seen that kings can do no wrong, meaning kings can get away with anything they desire. Him as governor, he could do as he wishes. He can torture whoever he wants. Uh, you know, it, he's just surrounded by power and corruption. And all of a sudden he's wondering, is there a truth? Is there something greater than this? Is there something greater than us? Is there something for which one should die for? Um, you know, is there this important truth? To be honest with you guys, I I lean towards the second alternative because of how the rest of the conversation goes. Perhaps that makes me naive, um, but again, I, I think it's in keeping with the rest of the conversation. Well, Pilate does not find legal fault in Jesus. And I say legal because I'm not in his head. I don't know what he's thinking. I'm making a lot of assumptions and guesses here. But legally, he's saying, Effectively, this guy is either a philosopher or like a religious guru, but he's not this political revolutionary that, you know, the Sanhedrin is telling me that he is. So he attempts to free Jesus. And here's where he makes a political miscalculation. He goes out and says, Hey, it is tradition that during the Passover, so essentially over this holiday, I will release one person. Um, do you want me to release Jesus or do you want me to release Barabbas? Now, clearly he is thinking people are going to choose Jesus because Jesus is like this, again, philosopher, religious guru, whatever. He's not dangerous in any way, uh, but he is very mistaken. The people choose Barabbas. Um, now, we know that the, the people really are being guided by the Jewish elite. That's very explicit in the other Gospels. Um, and But it, it's, it's explicit here as well. Um, and they go, no, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now, 
Barabbas is described, at least the NET calls him a revolutionary. Just to be clear, technically the word in Greek that is used there is a robber. And you might be thinking, well, then why translate it as revolutionary? This term robber appears in many different sources at the time, like first century sources, and it became a euphemism for a revolutionary. So that's clearly what the text is saying here. I don't know of anybody who really disagrees with that. So there is, you know, such a strong irony here. The Jews are trying to crucify Jesus. Why? And we don't have to guess because we have this in John chapter 11, when Caiaphas, the high priest, he says, you, he's talking to the other people in the, in the council, right? He says, you know, nothing at all. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So they're trying to prevent some kind of political revolution or unrest by killing Jesus. Who do they free? Literally a guy who causes political unrest and revolution. Um, so, it, again, I mean, it, this whole scene is just dripping with irony. It, it is it is quite shocking. And, of course, if we fast forward be, beyond this gospel, we know that just 40 years later, uh the Jews will be destroyed because they do have a revolution and the Romans just are fed up with it and completely destroy them. So here the Jewish people are, you know, exclaiming for the, the freeing of the kind of guy who will ultimately uh, destroy them, result in their demise. Well, when the Jews do not want to free Jesus, then comes the torture, this kind of torture was common preceding crucifixion. Um, crucifixion was very much about the public spectacle. It was about sending a message. Um, uh, Roman citizens could not be subject to crucifixion. This was reserved for slaves or provincials, right? People who had been conquered. Um, and so Jesus is flogged um, or scorched it, it really the details of this are are horrific and i'm going to go through through them i'm not really trying to kind of evoke some kind of emotional response by how awful this is but i think it's important that we get the scene what's really happening um the jews actually had a limit on on flogging someone uh the jewish law said it could only go up to 40 lashings and actually they would stop at 39 just to make sure they never went over that limit so they did not break their own law. The Romans had no such limit, okay? In fact, their floggings were so severe, the Romans' floggings, I mean, were so severe that sometimes prisoners who were not even sentenced to death would die just from the flogging. It would be done with uh, flagella, that's the, the, the word in Latin. Um, these were leather whips, that would have knots in them. And in the knots, they would either put pieces of iron or bone uh, and that would sink into your skin and then left, and they would leave, sorry, skin hanging from the from your back or anywhere that you're struck. Um, the, we actually have records, we have descriptions from these floggings where they would leave bones exposed. Um, you know, the bones of the prisoner would be exposed from the flogging. Um, so just utterly, horrific um and there is there's not just this this uh corporal punishment but there's mocking right and the mocking again is part of this almost ritual almost a ceremony um the soldiers braid a crown of thorns i think everybody is familiar with that idea at least culturally uh it, you know they probably grab just a nearby bush or something like that and crafted it into a crown um, now in art, we always see the thorns like kind of, uh, facing inward so that they will cause bleeding. It's slightly more likely that the thorns were facing outward so that it actually looked like a crown, but it probably had thorns everywhere. I'm not really trying to have an edgy take here, but the, but the point of the crown is not so much torture as it is they're mocking, give Jesus this like disguise of a king so they can make fun of him and continue to flog him and strike him. Um, so they they put this crown of thorns on him. 
Um, and then they give him a purple, uh, like a purple cape. It's a purple robe. Um, now on this purple robe, um, probably everybody here knows this, but purple was a very expensive dye in the ancient world. And so only the very wealthy or royalty would wear purple clothing. It was very, very expensive. So you might be thinking, well, then how did the Roman soldiers just get a purple garment to put on Jesus and possibly ruin, right, with the blood and everything? Um, well, we actually get a clue from the Gospel of Matthew, which refers to the same garment as a scarlet robe. Well, a scarlet robe is what a Roman soldier would wear, and it was uh, it was made with a much cheaper dye, and they probably put that on him kind of pretending that it's a purple robe, right? Again, they're putting this mock costume on Jesus. And um, and it, it, it makes perfect sense to describe it as a purple robe. Think about it like if uh, you have a young son and he's pretending to be a superhero and you tie a towel around his neck so he can have a cape. Well, you may refer to that item as a cape when, when we know, strictly speaking, it's not a cape, it's a towel around his neck. Um, that's what's going on here, right? We're referring to it as a purple robe when literally speaking, it's, it's really a scarlet uh, robe or scarlet cape. But so they, 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 they put a royal robe on Jesus. They put this crown on him and they continue to strike him. Um, and then there's also the, the literally making fun of him, right? They say, hail king of the Jews. Um, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the standard way of greeting and praising the Caesar was to say, Hail Caesar. So they are employing that language on purpose to just, again, use sarcasm and mock the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, you're totally a king. Um, it's extremely demeaning, um, you know, not to mention extremely painful. The, the flogging had to be terrible i mean when you read the descriptions i'm not really trying to like play it up when you read the descriptions of these floggings it's it's hard to take um well so after this goes on um pilot actually attempts to release jesus again right um and and he says here's the man um and <laughs> effectively what he's trying to do is saying Okay, look at what we did to Jesus. Okay, we tortured him. We made fun of him. He is horrifically beaten. Are we done here? Are we done? Whatever he did to I know you guys, can we call it quits? Can we call it even? No. The answer is no. They will not. They want him crucified. Nothing else will do. Not even the kind of flogging that literally could have killed a man. Um. Now, there is actually kind of a, a sad beauty to the words that Pilate uses when he says, behold the man, right? These are the exact same words that God in the Old Testament uses when he presents the very first king of Israel to one of the prophets, to Samuel. He says, here's the man, right? So there's this connection where Pilate is using kind of this biblical language, unknowingly so. And it it's just sad. It's just, honestly, it's just sad um, that Pilate is having to present the Jews with their own king using Old Testament language, and they say, crucify him, crucify him. Um, there's also this deep theological motif when he says, here's the man, or behold the man. Why? Because the whole reason why Jesus can be in that situation where he can be demeaned and mocked and tortured is because he became man, right? Be because God himself decided to become man for our sake. Um, so there is this like powerful message there, behold God as man. And that's the reason that we can do all this. Um, and, you know, to quote C.S. Lewis, um, he says the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. And that's very much what's going on here. Behold the incarnation. Um, now the Jewish elite, they're not having it. They say crucify him, crucify him. Um, and, um, you know, Pilate hands him over to the Jews. That's kind of metaphorical in the sense that still it had to be Roman soldiers who would carry out the crucifixion. That's just how it was done. But it, 
but it's made clear that it's at the behest of the Jews and not at the behest of the Romans. Okay. Um, it, and well, so I, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, the, the, the Jews say at this point, you know, that they have a law and their law demands that Jesus be crucified. Again, irony upon ironies, and that will be the theme for tonight. It is irony because we learned, right, that Jesus is the law incarnate, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for the reader of the gospel, I'm not saying the Jews at the time understood this, but the reader of the gospel understands that what they're saying is actually equivalent to saying Jesus demands the death of Jesus because Jesus is the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the incarnation of the law. Um, so it is an idea that makes no sense, and the reader of the gospel picks up on that. And they say, when, when, when the Jews are responding to Pilate, they say, he claims to be the son of God. Okay. And at this point, we have just, again, I'm sorry, but one of the coolest moments in, in all of the gospel, because when they say this, Pilate, quote, becomes more afraid than ever, right? Um, now, think about it from the standpoint of a Roman. Romans were very familiar with uh, their own mythology, with Greek, myth Greek mythology. So they were familiar with tales of gods becoming human and then uh, generally being mistreated by other humans. And then those people who mistreated the gods, who are sort of in disguise, uh, did not fare well, right? The gods would take revenge upon uh, those who were unkind to the incarnate gods, if we want to say it like that, although it's not quite the same as the incarnation in the Bible. Um, but so, but, but the point here is that Pilate actually takes that claim very seriously. And <laughs> again, <laughs> take a shot every time I say this, how ironic, how ironic that it is a Gentile who immediately takes that claim very seriously and wants to actually inspect further when the Jews have just dismiss that claim time after time, even though they have seen miracles. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle. And it is Pilate who's like, say what? He's the son of God. I, I need to look into this. And he does so with fear. Um, now, in the other gospels, we're told that Pilate's wife had a dream, right? Where she's told not, essentially not to mess with Jesus. And she's, she, she, tells that to Pilate. So Pilate, in a sense, has also experienced a miracle uh, via this dream. Now, it's not the same as a miracle of feeding the 5,000 or raising someone from the dead. So he certainly does not have near as much evidence as the Jews, but he's got something, right? Um, well, um, it surprisingly, then, not only does Pilate take this claim somewhat seriously, but he gets to the heart of the matter. He says, where are you from? And since we have been studying the Gospel of John, that question should hit us hard, right? Where are you from? Why? Jesus has repeatedly given the answer to that. He's from heaven. He's from above. He's from God. And every time the listeners go, wait, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Pilate is not confused like that. He actually understands, like, if you are a son of God, if you are divine, then the one question I need answered is, where are you from? But Jesus actually declines to answer, right? Although throughout the gospel, he's, he has been more than happy to give the answer, this time he does not. This shows how deliberate Jesus is about walking towards the cross, Um he is in control of the situation. He could have defended himself legally. He could have answered that question, but he does not. And Pilate at this point, I know that we're at the 40-minute mark, by the way. Give me another five minutes. I'm going to try to finish um, this, and then we'll open it up to questions and comments. Um, but Pilate is frustrated, um, and, and he says, you won't answer my question. Your life is in my hands. Now, you you could look at this again two ways. It depends how you view Pilate. Um, you could look at it like him just being annoyed that effectively by Jesus not answering his question, 
Jesus is looking down upon Pilate, and Pilate is very unhappy with that, to put it mildly. Or perhaps Pilate is actually trying to help Jesus in a way, and he's saying, look, if you want me to help you, you're going to give me something. Give me something to work with. But if you refuse to answer my questions, there is nothing I can do for you. Um, but what Jesus responds instead, instead of giving him the answer that Pilate seeks, he says effectively, look, my life is not in your hands. You would have no authority over me if it wasn't that God gave you that authority. Right. Effectively, if God wanted to take that away from you, you wouldn't have it. This is not you being in control. This is God being in control. And this idea of, of God and government, I actually wrote about it in the blog. I, I realize now that I won't be able to get into that unless people want to ask questions, and then I'm, I'm more than happy to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at that point, Jesus kind of seals his fate, right? It's like, I'm not going to answer your question and do what you're going to do because really this is being orchestrated by God. He has given you this authority. And then comes Pilate's uh, third um, attempt to free him. Um, and it's clear at this point that Pilate does not want to crucify Jesus. He is perhaps beginning to believe or at least doubt, right? Like believe that Jesus might be telling the truth or maybe he's not as crazy as they say or or whatever. Um, and so he tries to release him. And here is where the Jews actually twist his arm because they say, look, if you release Jesus, we are going to send word to Caesar that you freed a man who claimed to be king, effectively a traitor, right? So the Jews say to Pilate, I mean, think about how twisted the situation is. You either kill him or we will tell Caesar that you are a traitor because you released a traitor. And that's the end of the trial, pretty much, right? What Pilate now has to kill him, and I don't mean that in a moral, like if Pilate wants to save his own skin, he's going to have to kill Jesus. And he does so. If At the end of the day, Caesar is not innocent, and I'm not really trying to, to argue that he's innocent. Caesar ends up choosing political expediency instead of the truth. Um but notice that throughout the narrative, that does come across and it's explicitly said to be a lesser sin, a lesser wrong than what the Jewish leader doing. And I, let me say this one last thing and then we can we can go into questions and, and all that. But the thing is, the end of this scene, it is beyond shocking because why they say, look, Pilate, we're going to accuse you of being a traitor. And then what is it they say? We have no king except Caesar. Okay. That should that should blow our minds because it is it is effectively apostasy what they're doing. Um to understand this, we really have to go back to the old testament a little bit, and I'll I'll do it very quickly because of time. Um, but first of all, who is the king of the Jews? Who is the king of Israel? It is God, and that is made clear throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he's called judge, which judge is like a political office of ruler. He fights the wars for Israel, which is the role of a king. But then he's also explicitly called king. And there's a, there's a particular scene in the Old Testament when the Israelites demand a political king. They say, hey, we want a guy. We want a guy to be king, just like all the other nations. And what does God say to that? He says, Fine, I'll give you a king, but you are rejecting me as your king, okay? And it is exactly uh, what's happening here. Um, oh, I may have meant, uh, I see a comment. If I said Caesar, I meant uh, Pilate chooses political expediency. Um, forgive me if, I, if my words got, got all messed up there. Well, but then also in the Old Testament, God says, I will give you a human king. But that human king will come from your own people. He will not be a foreigner. Um, and here, they're praising as king a foreigner. And finally, what is the promise that the Jews are looking forward to? A new king who will bring the eschaton, who will essentially bring heaven to earth. And that king will come from the line of David. That king will be an Israelite, a Jew. And here, 
the religious elite are exclaiming, we have no king but Caesar. That is the very blasphemy for which they're trying to kill Jesus. At this point, the tables are completely reversed, and it is clear who's the villain. It Again, it, without I, I would love to read all the verses and all that, but that statement should just shock us to no end. Okay. With that, I can, uh, Matt, if you want to open it up to questions and comments, we can see how it goes. Sure. As always, guys, if you'd like to participate with a question or point of discussion, just write the word question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice. I'll be happy to bring you in while we wait for that to fill in. Um, you, you spoke about the competing interpretations of Pilate's questioning of Jesus and the cynical interpretation or the skeptical interpretation of him is that he's saying that power determines truth. And that's a theme that's going to cause my ears to perk up because that's the stuff I find fascinating. Um, you took the, uh, maybe opposite is the wrong word, but the competing interpretation that Pilate is being more good faith and he sincerely wants to know the truth that Jesus is discussing. And you gave your reasons. Make the best case you can for the other interpretation that Pilate is mocking Jesus and, and saying that truth is irrelevant. It's power that determines truth. I see. I think this, the strongest case will come really from the extra biblical documents. Essentially, everything else we know about Pilate makes him look like an utterly ruthless guy uh, who was highly anti-Semitic. He would have cared nothing for the Jewish elite. He would have cared nothing for Je for Jesus as being another Jew involved in their messy customs and all that. I mean, um, this guy did horrible things before this trial and after this trial. Um, so I think if you if you bring that view of Pilate to the picture, then you would be safe to assume that everything that Pilate is saying is really in a mocking tone or using sarcasm without believing a thing that is being said here. Um, but I just think that the text, when you read it, it doesn't actually lend itself to that interpretation. And let me say one more thing. The view of Pilate developed very differently, both in the West and the East. And by that, I mean Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. Um, in Eastern Christianity, like Eastern Orthodox, Pilate, by tradition, this is not in the Bible, tradition is that Pilate became a believer and a couple of Eastern churches actually canonized him as a saint. Um, in the Western church, uh, he became a villain. Essentially, the people in the West came to look at Pilate just as negatively as I described him. Um, and I tend to think that it is the Eastern church that has the right interpretation. Now, I'm not buying their canonization stories they're very late they come around in like the sixth century so i'm not saying they're historically reliable but at least their interpretation of caesar seems to be more adequate with the text seems to me just just so i'm understanding we do have a question here but i as a complete layman someone who is a biblical ignoramus i want to make sure i understand what you just said you just said that the guy who oversaw the trial and crucifixion of jesus christ later became a saint in some denominations of the christian church Yes. Uh, okay. So historically, unless you unless you take their canonization story to be reliable, which again, I think is questionable, but historically, we really only know about Pilate's life until he was deposed and then exiled. And once Pilate goes into exile, really is anyone's guess, as according to some historians, he may have killed himself. According to other historians, he may have lived a long life after that. But the Eastern Church tends to believe that after that exile, he repented and became a believer. And uh, actually, talk about a redemption arc, man. <laughs> that's a twist. All right, that, I did not know that fact pattern. So thanks for explaining that to me. Uh, Gilgamesh is requesting to speak. Gilgamesh, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yeah. Well, look at what he says after the, you know, the flogging and then the piercing, all that. He says. When they, when they still want him crucified, he goes, I wash my hands of this. It's like he's trying to save Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to save himself. The Jews are still renouncing God and everything, and they're saying, crucify him. So he goes, okay, fine. I wash my hands of this. This is on you. This is not on me. He believes Jesus, what he's, who he is. He believes he is the son of God, 
He's not mocking him. He takes it very serious. That's why he's trying to save him. But Jesus will not save himself because he has to be crucified in order for, you know, what's coming next to happen, you know, and basically, um, so yeah, he believes, you know, because of what his wife said, you know, and the fact that he keeps trying to give Jesus a chance to save himself and he won't, he won't, you know, basically didn't, he doesn't try to save himself. He's like, okay, fine. We're going to do this, but I wash my hands. This is on you people. You're the ones who want him dead. I don't. You do. So that's why he does that whole thing. And I think that, you know, like the Eastern Church, I do think that he actually does, once he's out, you know, gone, he's kicked out and everything, he does repent. And he, you know, because talking to Jesus, I think it made him realize that, you know, before that, the guy's not a good person. Yeah, but he realizes that this is one person he didn't want to see die on the cross. Because I think he really did become, talking to Jesus made him realize. And that, and like you said, Robert, they renounced God. And somebody else I was listening to, um, Vincent James, he, he was talking about this. The people that are, um, the Jews are no longer the, the you know, the... Um, they were once God's people, but it's really the Christians who have become God's people now because they follow Jesus' teachings and God's message. The Jews have renounced. When they said this, they literally renounced God and said, no more. We, you are not our, you know, our king is Caesar. You know, you're not, you're not, a, we're not following you anymore. So they're renouncing God. So, and I do, I do agree with that, that the Christians have become God's people because they're the ones that accept Jesus. They accept his message. They don't renounce him. And, you know, the fact that he goes to a, you know, it's it's like this. When you watch Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ, you really, it's like, it's horrifying to watch how, that what they did to him. And yet he still sits there and says, God forgive them for they do not know what they do. Even though he, what he's really saying is, don't punish them for what's going to happen, what happening to me because I want this to happen. He doesn't want anybody to suffer for what's happening to him, because that's not in him. And then, of course, later as he's dying on the cross, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he knows he hasn't, it's, um, you know, and of course, Mel Gibson's making a sequel. Yeah, he and, yeah they are going to be making a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. But there's also the, you know, remember the movie uh, Last Temptation of Christ? The one that got a lot of heat because it showed, you know, that the whole thing with, uh, you know, before he's crucified. That last temptation was, what did Jesus overcome? The temptation of the flesh. That's what Mary Magdalene and everything. So when I look at that and, you know, he's overcome all the trials and the temptations that are before he's you know, put on trial before his crucifixion. That's why he accepts his fate because he knows that there's nothing else man can do to him. Even if they whip his skin, they pierce him, they do all these terrible things, he still knows where he's going. And that's why he doesn't try to fight it. And Pasha Pilate, he literally goes, okay, you people are even more sadist than I am. You know, so he's washing his hands saying, this is on you people. I am. I want nothing to do with this. And I do think that he actually later does repent what he did and becomes a true, he, you know, talking to Jesus made him a believer, like his wife said, that this is the son of, you know, don't do this. You know, this is God's son. So, All right. you, yeah. All right. Th- thanks for the thoughts, Gilgamesh. Uh-huh. I, want to, I want to make sure that uh, we, we have about five minutes left. So yeah. I want to make sure that uh, we leave enough time, but I, I appreciate uh, oh, no problem. thoughts. Uh, Robert, did you want to add anything to that? No, uh, I mean, honestly, I do have this positive view of Pilate in this. Don't get me wrong. What he did was wrong. Oh, there. Like He yeah. was weak. Um, he should have, he should not have done what he did. But what I mean by positive view is I do think that he was like kind of starting to believe and wonder and all that. So, but well, I think we've talked about that enough. Let's see what other people have to say. Sure. Uh, Timothy, go ahead, or Tim, uh, go ahead if you would like to chime in. And as a last call reminder, if anyone else is looking to get in on the discussion, uh, please just type the word question uh, in the chat. I also, I welcome all perspectives. I welcome whatever you'd like to talk about. I would 
just request that we keep our discussion in the chat kind and polite. And if we can stick to the topic of the lesson, that is uh, appreciated. So thank you guys for your participation. Yeah, to be, yeah, to be fair. Go ahead. Not, not, to be, not to sound too preachy. It is a Bible study, guys. Be a little bit, <laughs> a little <laughs> bit respectful. So, um, admittedly, I've gone to church my whole life, so I've heard a whole bunch of perspectives on this. But I'd be curious to hear your perspective on, and Gilgamesh did kind of touch on this a bit. Your your perspective, Robert, on the people that were directly involved in killing the Son of God and their, uh, you know, prospect of ending up in heaven. Mm. Um, I mean, honestly, on I'm just going to give you the very standard answer because I believe it to be true. Um, I think that even of that sin, they could have been forgiven um, if they repented. Now, of course, we don't have any accounts of that happening. It doesn't mean that it didn't. But I, I don't put them in any kind of special category of like, no, this was the one thing that they're just absolutely doomed for. Um, so, yeah, I don't... Maybe maybe you have a more insightful take than, than I do. No, I'm just curious because in terms of, yeah, the, it, it seems like the idea is this is what had to happen. So someone had to be involved in doing it. And it, it's kind of hard to ever get your head around the justice that um, that God or Jesus would um, lay out for, for anything, really. I'm not talking specifically this. So it's kind of hard to look at and go, how it could be considered uh, just on on God's part to punish them for something that, for lack of a better way of putting it, they were essentially fated to do, if that makes sense. Uh, so I'm not sure, I'm not really sure how I would I view it, but I do look at it and go, it strikes me that surely they have a capability of being forgiven and being redeemed for something that really they just had to do. It was uh, again, fate's the wrong word. It's a bit of a kind of airy fairy sort of way of putting it but yeah. yeah i just feel like surely they had that opportunity they still had to make the choice like everyone else but it strikes me that surely i was just curious of your perspective though yeah okay so now i understand your question a little bit better this is going to depend on really how you philosophically how you understand certain things but uh, i'll tell you my take on this which is Okay, so Jesus had to die. This was part of God's plan, so it was going to happen. But that is not to say that these people had to do this, right? Um, God, I, I think God used the things that they freely chose to do. Um, and so he put Jesus in the situation where, where God knew exactly how this would develop. But that is not to say that God caused him to do this. That is a, that is a fine but very important distinction. Um, so no, I, I would not claim that God made anyone in the situation do what they did. It's that God knew what they would do and um, and used it, right? And to some extent, God set up the pieces, like we see in the dialogue, Jesus does not defend himself and all that. But, um, but God did not twist anyone's arm, right? He didn't force Pilate to do what he did. He didn't force the Jews to do what they did. They chose so freely. Uh, and so that would be my take on, on this situation. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I did see a request from Daniel to speak as well. So with a uh, last minute or so that we have, I want to make sure he gets his chance. Daniel, go ahead if you're ready. Oh yeah, sure. Um, just a quick comment. I, I, you know, obviously this is by no means a theological hill to die on <laughs> and we don't have time for a long debate, but um, what, one thing that I have heard people say in regards to the, pilot debate, uh, uh, you know, where he comes down on things in that particular conversation is um, uh, in the in the camp of, um, you know, the cynical argument is he he doesn't really seem, at least according to the way that it's written, he doesn't seem to wait for a response. He acts, he asks the all important question of Jesus of what is truth. But it seems dismissive simply because we don't have any answer given from Jesus in response to that. Um, so it seems sarcastic, but uh, that was it. Yeah. Thanks, thanks I mean, Daniel. Jimmy, you totally oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Robert. Yeah. I was going to say that's totally fair. Like I said, the, you can kind of take the Western interpretation or the Eastern one, um, and there's no, there's more nuance there that I'm skipping over. But yeah, that's, to that's totally a fair perspective. Um, 
I know that we are uh, essentially against the clock, but Matt, do you have another couple of minutes? I'd like to mention one thing I didn't get to if you have maybe two or three minutes. I am late for dinner, but I'll oh. allow it. No, I'll allow okay. it. If, if, it's, if it's just a couple of minutes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I just wanted to mention because it's important is that um, there is some controversy about the timing essentially of when Jesus died, whether it was on Thursday or Friday, because in this, in chapter 19, we see John use the phrase that Jesus died in the day of preparation of the Passover. And if, depending on how you interpret that phrase, then it sounds like Jesus is, uh, Sorry, it sounds like John is saying Jesus died on Thursday, where all the other Gospels put it squarely on Friday. Um, but the thing is that that phrase, the day of preparation, can just be can just mean the Friday before the Saturday of Passover, because Friday was always called the day of preparation. Um, so I think that John doesn't get his chronology wrong or off or whatever. Um, it's totally sensible to interpret that phrase like john is also placing the crucifixion on friday uh if you want to know more about that go read the blog i don't have any more time but i did want to mention it because it you know it's a controversy that people run into and there's really a perfectly sensible response okay thanks robert thanks everybody for participating this evening as a reminder if you missed any part of the study uh, or and you'd like to listen back or if you'd like to read robert's um lesson blog, or you'd like to get in touch with Robert, anything Bible study related, you can find all that on the Bible study page of the website, linked on the homepage, MacChristiansonMedia.com. We will see you back here next week. And just uh, a reminder in closing, we'll be, we'll take a, a break on uh, January 28th. So we'll, we'll have a study next week on the 21st, break on the 28th, and we'll resume on February 4th. Thank you for your patience with that break. Have a great night and we'll catch you next week.